Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. According to Jewish tradition, today is also the anniversary of the first Sabbath of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, let's notice in verse 31, God has, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it goes through and describes uh, what God has created on the various days. In verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. You know, it's interesting, we have a seven-day week. You ever wondered why we have a seven-day week? Why don't we have a ten-day week? Why is the cycle seven days? God created from the very beginning. God had a plan. And God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was absolutely worn out and couldn't move. God's plan involved a uh, seven days. And uh, God set apart the seventh day for a very special purpose. Then as we go on in, in Genesis, we, uh, in, in chapter 2, it describes uh, some more of God's uh, creation, um, describes a bit about uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, describes the, uh, let's notice in verse 15, <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God put his creation in this very beautiful setting. And there was one special tree that he had a, uh, that they were given instruction to not partake of. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 3, we read about uh, how the serpent, in verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan here was offering a shortcut. A shortcut to being like God. That here you can go ahead and partake of this and uh, do an end run around God's plan. You will be like God. Verse 6. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that a tree uh, desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. You know, it was God's prerogative to determine right and wrong. It was God's prerogative to to establish and set apart, this is right and this is wrong. That's not man's prerogative to choose for himself. Oh, I think I'll do this. I think I'll do that. God is the one who set forth from the beginning right and wrong. You know, we live in a society that has perpetuated this exact same approach, the approach that we read about right here in the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of God's creation. That approach to taking for ourselves the determination that we will make, the determination between what is right and what is wrong, that's something that we see all around us. And yet... God 
had told them that there would be penalties, that they were not to do that, that if they did that, that it would cost them their life. God didn't tell them to stay away from it because he was trying to keep from them something that was wonderful and good and that he just didn't want them to have that much fun. You know, that, that wasn't it at all. And yet from, from the actions that are described here, from the approach that we see around us in society, that's obviously what they think of God's instructions. That God gives us those, if there is a God, to keep us from having fun. That's, that seems to be the approach and the mindset. And yet as, as we go on, verse 7 uh, the eyes, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God, then the Lord God called Adam and said, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And so God asks, you know, who, who told you that you were naked? Now, God knew the answer. God was giving Adam an opportunity to see what Adam was going to say. And so uh, Adam confessed to eating, but didn't really take responsibility. He passed responsibility to his wife. And she, uh, in, in turn, passed responsibility to the serpent. Verse 13, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, uh, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat uh, dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Verse uh, 23 or verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his, out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, here in the very beginning, as we read about God's creation, God uh, repaired the earth, God formed man of the dust of the ground, we see at the very beginning hints about a great plan that God had in store from the very beginning. As God was going through and creating the various aspects, various parts of His creation, when He created man in, in verse Uh, 26 of Genesis chapter 1. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You know, from, from the very beginning, it's plain that God was in the process of recreating Himself, adding to His family. Made very plain in His creation that each, uh, each thing that was living brought forth after its own kind. And when God got ready to create man, he made them in his own image. 
that God desired to have an intimate relationship with him. That God, uh, we're told about how he walked through the garden in the cool of the day. And he called out for him. You know, what a sad commentary that what, what was to be so special. You know, that time walking with God, intimately walking with God, and here's Adam and his wife huddled behind some tree. You know, certainly a, a, a very uh, sad uh, commentary. We know that sin separates us from God. We see that here at the very beginning. You know, God's plan from the beginning was that man would have access to the tree of life, that we would be able to have that intimate relationship with God forever, that it would not come to an end. And yet, as we just read, Adam and Eve walked contrary to God's instructions and set mankind on a path that it has been on to this day. A path of choosing, determining for themselves what is right, what is wrong. Taking the prerogative of God. Being cut off and separated from God. You know, God could have responded to Adam and Eve's uh, actions in a number of ways. God could have simply wiped them out and started over again. You know, recreated Adam 2 and Eve 2. But he didn't. He told them the penalties that came, that would come, as a result of the course that they had chosen and determined for their lives. God spelled those out for them. You know, we learn by instruction. We learn by the example of others. And we learn by experience. Those are the ways that we learn. God set them forth and, and told them, it's recorded for us, the penalties that, were going, that they were going to incur. And those penalties and, and then the resulting approach to life that then became perpetuated. The results of that are recorded for us. We can read through those. We can see the result of that some 6,000 years later. That that approach has continued to this day and we see the sad state of, of mankind. You know, Mr. Ruddleston talked about the need for hope. We live in a world that doesn't have very much. And that those that are looking for it, if you look on the Internet at least, there's not much of it available. Nor is there in any source. There's really one source for hope. God allowed them to reap the consequences. He allowed those consequences to be recorded so that we and others would be able to learn by their example the, the distinguish the difference. God's plan was not thwarted. You know, God's plan from the beginning that He was re reproducing Himself, that He would have this intimate relationship with Him that they would be able to have access to the tree of life. You know, God's plan was not thwarted. Here we are at the end of chapter 3, and what we see is that because of the choices that they made, they have now been cut off. They no longer have access to the tree of life. They no longer have that intimate relationship with God. They no longer have... The, uh, the expectation of life without death. Now, death has, has become the expectation that they will return to the dust again. God has a plan, and His plan was not thwarted here at the beginning. God reveals His plan for salvation through 
his annual holy days. Where there are the three holy day seasons in the spring of the year, we have the Passover season. Represents Christ's shed blood to reconcile us to God. That he has paid the penalty. And that by putting sin out of our lives through the days of unleavened bread, that we will then be able to be reconciled to God through Christ's shed blood. And we come forward through the year. And we've got the, the Pentecost season where God's Holy Spirit was poured out on His servants. That we, we understand that we are the first fruits in God's plan for the salvation of all of mankind. And then we come to the fall, Holy Day season, that represents, as was mentioned earlier, the culmination of what's recorded of God's plan for mankind. The time that this breach that began right here at the very beginning, the time when that breach will be repaired. Let's uh, go to Psalm 111. As was mentioned earlier, although there are many that talk about hope and uh, various organizations that claim to have hope, Yet there's very little of real substance. You know, there are plenty of false hopes. There's very little real understanding. And we see part of the reason for that right here in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. A good understanding have all those that do His commandments. In other words, in order to have the real understanding, to understand the hope that God's Word provides, to have this book open to our understanding, we have to obey. God reveals His plan throughout the holy days. But it's only by obedience to them that we're able to have real understanding. You know, there are lots of people who know about them. Lots of professing Christians who will be going to church tomorrow as part of their regular custom are not ignorant on the subject that there are holy days in the Bible. They, they know about them, but they don't understand them. They think they were for somebody else. They don't really have any idea of, of what they really mean. They may understand that there were certain uh, significant events that occurred on those days. But that's essentially it. Because they do not observe them, because they do not observe what, what God's uh, instructions, they simply are closed off to the understanding that comes as a result of obedience. Let's go forward to Revelation chapter 22. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, we read about how man was sent out, cut off from the, the, the tree of life, put without the Garden of Eden, and cut off from re-entering, no longer having access to the tree of life. And yet God's plan was not thwarted simply because Adam and Eve messed up, because Satan got in the way and, and stirred things up. God's plan was not thwarted. Here we, we turn to the, to the end of the book, to the end of the Bible, and we see something here in verse 14. Blessed are they, are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. 
You know, the Bible opens up with mankind making a terrible left turn, a mistake that then cut them off from being able to, at that point, uh, realize the fulfillment of God's plan. And yet, God's plan provided for that, provided for their reconciliation. And we, we see right here that, that that hope that we would be able to partake of the tree of life is something that lies yet ahead. This morning, I'd like for us to focus on the preparation that is needed for the fulfillment of this day. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter three. We're going to begin in, in verse one. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he, he writes this letter to the believers, and he tells them right at the beginning that I'm doing this to remind you to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance to help you remember certain things that you know that are essential that he's going to be reminding them of us of those things. And then he goes on in, in verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that sounds familiar. You know, scoffers walking after their own lusts. You know, does that not basically sum up man's life on this earth? You know, pursuing his own lusts. He says that there is this, this thing that they say that where is the promise of his coming? You know, we, we've heard about it, but where is it? They dismiss those promises. They dismiss the, uh, in some cases, that there is a real God with this concept that all things continue as they were. You know, there, there, there's just natural cycles. There's the ebb and there's the flow. There are ups and there are downs. And that whatever you, you're looking at, it simply represents one spot on a great continuum of time. And yet it's a foolish concept. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, a very familiar chapter, Christ's disciples asked him, a very important question. Verse 3 of Matthew 24, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this is the million-dollar question. When is Christ going to come back? You know, we just read about it there in Second Peter chapter 3, that people dismiss it, saying, that, you know, where is that? You know, we've heard about it, but where is it? You know, all things continue as they have. Here we read about Christ being asked the question. Let's notice His answer. 
Verse 4, he, he first begins by telling him, Take heed that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name, verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. It talks about a persecution, that they will be deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended and will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then shall will the, the end will come. So Christ describes various signs here that would precede his return. And he goes on uh, further to, to describe other signs as well. But you know, many of these signs are rather vague. You know, it talks about wars and rumors of wars. Be hard pressed to find very many points in history where there weren't wars and rumors of wars. You know, one of the things that you, you understand comparing this chapter with history is that there have been times in history where others looked and said, Oh, this is it. And the proof is that there are all these wars, and, and the proof is that there are these famines, and the proof is that there are these earthquakes. You know, Christ describes here in this chapter that no one knows the day of his coming. Christ's point in this chapter was not to give them so much detail that they could mark it on a calendar and say, Aha, this is it. You know, these aren't the only signs that were given of Christ's return. You know, we have a booklet, 14 signs of Christ's return. There are other signs that really help narrow in this time as being unique in all of history. But scoffers dismiss that. You know, they, they point to some of these vague signs that can be found at other points in history. And dismiss it, oh, you, you know, they've always talked about that. They've always said that. It's not going to happen. That's the essential concept. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, in the preceding chapter we have an account of a rough overview of, of some genealogy, and at the end of chapter 5 we're introduced to Noah and his uh, three sons, and then in chapter 6 of Genesis in verse 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You kind of get the idea that it was bad. Only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah truly was a light in a very dark world. So in verse 11, 
told that the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And God goes on to describe and give very specific instructions for the construction of this monumental boat. Just try to picture for a moment that time. You know, the earth was filled with violence, filled with corruption, so much so that it disgusted God. He said, I I am going to wipe the wickedness from the earth. And he gave Noah here his job to do, this construction of this ark. And Noah is referred to as a preacher of righteousness. You know, this ark that Noah was to complete was huge. They didn't have cranes back in that day. You know, they didn't have uh, chainsaws. They didn't have lumber mills. You know, you couldn't go down to Lowe's and just place his order. (laughs) You know, this was a huge job done the hard way from scratch without the aid of all the fancy tools that we have today that we take for granted. You know, if you get ready to build something out of wood, you don't go and look at a tree and just say, yeah, I think this one looks about right. You know, you go to the store and you buy it, already cut and dried. Noah had this enormous task before him. And as he was building this ark, now think about the work that God had there at that time. Here was Noah, a preacher of righteousness, preaching about God's coming judgment on a wicked society, building this boat that was absolutely enormous. What was the result? The people ridiculed him. The, the people enjoyed seeing this, you know, Noah's folly, as they may have called it. This huge boat being built. They laughed. They joked. They dismissed it. And here was Noah preaching about God's coming judgment. They did not heed the warning. They did not heed the warning. Let's go to Amos chapter 3. We all know how that story turned out. They did not heed the warning. They laughed at Noah. Until Noah and his family were sealed in the ark. And then the thunder came. And then the people began to have second thoughts. Well, you know, perhaps Noah wasn't uh, such an idiot after all. But then it was too late. In Amos chapter 3, verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying... You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. No, of all the families on the earth, none have been blessed so much as the family of of Abraham and his descendants. You know, the great abundance that we enjoy today is the result of Abraham's obedience and God's promise to Abraham. So God talks about 
that uh, verse 2, that I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's a punishment that is aimed particularly at Abraham's descendants. God says in verse 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? You know, God's intent was that, that we would walk after him. We, we would walk in his ways. And yet, mankind has not. Our, our nation has not. Our forefathers have not. Down in verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You know, God has a plan. And His plan has been revealed through His servants down through time. God revealed His plan to His servant Noah. And as Noah preached against the wickedness and prepared for God's judgment, he was dismissed and ridiculed. But when God intervenes in history... He does so after having revealed it to His servants. Surely God, surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets. You know, God reveals His plan to His servants for a purpose. So that we might be prepared for what is coming. God was preparing a flood. And He gave Noah instructions so that Noah could be prepared. Could be physically prepared in addition to spiritually prepared. You know, as we read earlier in, in Matthew 24, Christ told about various terrible things that would come prior to his return. And he said, see that you be not troubled. You know, God's spirit is not a spirit of fear. God reveals things to us, to his servants, so that we would be prepared. Not so that we would be frightened and be terrified with nightmares, but so that we would be prepared. So that we will not miss out so that we may warn others, so that they may heed and also not miss out. You know, the time came when the, when the boat was sealed and those that were without missed out. There was no turning back, as it were. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 33. God reveals His plan through His servants, tells them ahead of time. You know, one of the things that that serves to do is it serves as a sign signifying that there is a God in heaven who does intervene in the affairs of men, who does set over them whosoever He will, who does bring His will to pass as it serves as a sign. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take the warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. 
He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman see the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and if the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Wherefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. So God gave instruction here for Ezekiel, whom he had appointed as a watchman, to sound the alarm. That when God reveals to his servants of this coming destruction, of a coming judgment, that they must sound the alarm. It makes it plain that if the alarm is heard but not heeded, those that are taking their blood is upon themselves. They have nobody to blame but themselves. They heard it. They knew it was coming. So it was with the flood. They knew that it was coming. Or should have if they had heeded Noah. He preached it for a period of years. And yet they dismissed it. They did not heed the message. But God uh, reveals, going on, the, the purpose for this warning. In verse 8, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked man from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Wherefore, verse 10, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, If our transgression and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? God made very plain that, that the wicked were to hear this alarm. That it was to not simply be passed over, that they were to, that they were to receive that warning. Even if they didn't listen, even if they don't respond, that God wanted them to receive that, that warning. Verse 11, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? You know, the purpose of sending the alarm to the wicked is not to terrify them. It's so that they will turn, that they would repent. God doesn't enjoy seeing the wicked suffer. God knows the end of the course that they have set out on. Verse 14. Again, when I say to the wicked, <coughs> you sh shall surely die, if he turns from his sins and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. The purpose is that they would turn that they would have the opportunity to be saved, to not be destroyed with judgment. But there's another component to this warning. In verse 12, Therefore, you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. 
nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. In other words, that this warning was to go out. And this warning was to proclaim God's coming judgment. And that the purpose was that the wicked would turn and repent and not have to reap the wrath, reap the consequences of their actions. And the other purpose was that the righteous would stay steadfast, that they wouldn't at some point give in to temptation. That we should be very clear that salvation is not something that is earned. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. It's made very clear there in, in Ezekiel 33 that it's our actions when... He returns that count the most. In Romans 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, God's gift is eternal life. We don't earn it. There's, there's not a quota that you have this many years of righteousness to fulfill, and then you can do whatever you want. That's not the way it works. You know, that there, there is no point at which we can reach and say, you know what, I think I've done enough. I think I've done enough. Look at all the good things that I've done. Does this not stand for something? You know, if, it, it does stand for something as long as we keep at it. But the moment that we turn aside, all is forgotten. Just like our sins are forgotten when we turn aside from them. And when we turn aside from, from a life of sin, from a way of sin, when we turn aside from the approach that began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, of determining for themselves what is right and what is wrong. When we turn aside from that and walk in God's steps, all that is past is forgotten and forgiven. And we have this gift to look forward to of eternal life. As long as we remain steadfast, you know, that's a concept that, that many are confused on. That somehow, if obedience is required, that it earns us something. It doesn't earn us anything. You know, all the obedience in, in the world doesn't change the fact that we have sinned and have fallen short. And then to receive this eternal life, it is received as a gift, not as wages that are due. Let's go back to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. We left off in, in verse four. Let's pick up in, in verse uh, 5. This is ad addressing those, the, the scoffers who, who say that all things continue as they were, that you know, he, he, he's not coming back, there, there is no return of Christ, that all things are going to continue. There is no coming judgment. There is no need for, for you know, all these doom and gloom predictions. Peter has this to say about those. 
Verse 5, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. You know, they, they willfully forget. There is plenty of evidence of the flood. Physical evidence. You know, there's fossil proof of a flood. There, for those that want to find evidence, tangible evidence that they can see with their eyes or handle with their hands, it exists. That there was a universal flood is something that is well established. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he makes the point that those detractors who dismiss God's coming judgment, saying, oh, no, 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 it's, it's just a fairy tale, that they are willingly ignorant, willfully forget evidence that God has intervened and judged a wicked mankind. And that there is another judgment that is coming. There is another judgment that is coming. In verse 8, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You know, here, a reference back to the beginning that we read here at the beginning of Genesis. By God's creation. God, act of creation, cr created uh, the heaven and the earth and, and, and all the things that are in them in six days. And then set aside the seventh day as a day of rest. And it, for God's plan is unfolding over a 7,000-year period of time. We have that millennial rest to look forward to. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How will they come to repentance unless they hear the cry? Unless they hear the warning being sounded? You know, God, uh, we're, we're to understand from this that the, the purpose of the perceived delay is His desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. You know that there is a coming time when God's judgment will come. And we're told that it will come as a thief in the night. That's a time that you don't expect. That's a time that you're not prepared. You're not looking. And it sneaks up unawares. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. The, the purpose, you'll remember from that we read at the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 3, was that Peter was reminding them of things that they already knew, that they would reflect on those, that they would meditate on those things, that they would focus on those things, not be distracted by the world around. In Matthew chapter 25, we have this parable of the ten virgins. We'll begin in verse 1. 
Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil on their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know, the the kingdom of God is described as the coming of that kingdom is described as these ten virgins who are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. They all know that he's coming. None of them know exactly when. Some are well prepared. And some aren't. Some are, are waiting till the last minute or have just simply procrastinated. There are things that they knew they needed to do, priorities that they knew they needed to shift, and they simply will do that another day. They've put it off. But everybody was caught by surprise. All ten were caught by surprise. It's just that those that were prepared were able to enter in. He he still came as a thief in the night, but they were prepared spiritually. The others were likewise surprised, but also realized that they didn't have enough. They weren't prepared. What a horrible, sinking feeling. You know, this is, is preserved for us so that we might never experience that horrible sinking feeling. So that we would be prepared. That we would not procrastinate and, and just put it off till another day. That we would have a sense of urgency that we would be actively, diligently preparing. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Verse 1. <clears throat> Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, that as we look forward to that, that we are diligently preparing purifying ourselves so that we may be found without spot, blameless. That we're not simply 
putting it off till another day, procrastinating, thinking we've got another year. Brethren, we should have a, a great sense of urgency. Time slips away so quickly. Here we are, the Feast of Tabernacles is almost at hand. We're here on the Feast of Trumpets. Think back to the beginning of the year. Think back to uh, perhaps some of your thoughts that you had at the beginning of the year. Some of the things that you looked forward to the year, the things that you wanted to do. Have you been able to do all of them? Or has time kind of slipped away? Time slips away. It, it waits for no one. We must have this sense of urgency. This, this sense that we need to be prepared to purify ourselves. Even as He is pure. Let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, you know, as we think about purifying ourselves, remember that God is, is referred to as the master potter, that we are, we are likened to clay in His hands. You know, he, he is working to purify us. And so as He molds and shapes us, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's painful. But it's bringing about this, this purpose that we will be able to realize this hope that we have. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, we're counseled, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. You know, God's judgment is coming. That is an established fact. He has brought His judgment on on civilization previously with the flood. God is going to bring His judgment again. And we're told to not be deceived, not be taken in with the idea that oh, all things continue as they have. Verse 8, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That goes back to what we read in Ezekiel 33. You know, there's not a quota of good works that we can fill up, check off, and then move on to something else. No, it's something that we must be found so doing. That we must persist in it. And sometimes as we're, as we're pursuing that, following in, in, in God's steps as He leads us, sometimes there are uh, periods of disappointment, periods of sorrow, periods that are painful. And we're told to not be deceived, to remember, keep in mind, the bigger picture, keep in mind what is going on. Keep in mind what we are sowing to. Keep in mind what our expectation is. Our expectation is not of the physical realm. It's not of the physical life. Our expectation is not what we see around. We're told, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let's go to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. In verse eleven. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the Scriptures." Paul's writings have been twisted and and turned into something that he wouldn't recognize. He certainly wouldn't claim what what others uh, say that he taught. You know, we're we're told here to uh, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. You know, we're praying fervently that God will speed that day, that Christ will come quickly. And yet, another year passes. And we pray fervently, with great desire. And time goes on. But we're told that time is coming and it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to catch everybody by surprise. And we're told that in the meantime, while from our side it might look like my Lord delays His coming, we're told to be diligent to be steadfast, and to recognize that the purpose of this this time that we have is so that we may be counted worthy. And so that others may also heed the warning that we are collectively a part of, of distributing and proclaiming to this world. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. In other words, you know, you know this. Paul is is telling them, I'm reminding you of things that you know. So think on these things. Meditate on these things. Whatever you do, don't turn aside. Don't forget. Don't let it slip. Don't be pulled in by the error of the wicked. Verse 18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Brethren, this day, This day represents such a wonderful time in God's plan. A time when our Lord and Savior will return to this earth in power and in glory. God speed that day.